So we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. I must start with, I sent Linda the wrong verses, so we are, it, what's in the bulletin is slightly off, we are looking at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, but we will actually be ending at verse 22, not all the way to 3, 6. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Hear now the eternal living word of God. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The word of the Lord. And so as we're studying the gospel according to Mark, this backstory of the gospel that Mark has written, the story behind this good news that has swept through the world, we're studying the life, work, and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, who is the Christ. Jesus, who is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah. Jesus, who is the Son of God in the flesh. And this Jesus has come to fulfill the kingdom of God. He's come to proclaim the time of fulfillment of God's reign. He's announcing for people to repent and believe. This is what you're called to, to enter the kingdom. But many questions arise when you're considering these things. When you consider repent, belief, the kingdom of God, and all that God teaches us in his way of life, in his word. What about God's grace? What, what part does grace play in, in being a disciple and repenting? What role does grace have in God's kingdom? So this morning, as, as Jesus continues his public ministry, he, he comes on the scene 
First, opening his public ministry right after John the Baptist was arrested, announcing the kingdom of God and his own kingship. And he calls for repentance and belief. And he taught with authority like no one had ever before. He was teaching with the authority of God himself. And he established his authority over the demons, over human illness, casting out demons and healing people everywhere he went. He established his authority to forgive sins, publicly revealing a bit about his identity. And then the human opposition to him from the religious leaders began immediately. But as Jesus continues his ministry, he's he's going to continue to reveal more about himself, more about his mission. And not only will we see his human opposition increase, but also we'll see more about what he has come to do and what that means for us. So in our passage this morning, we'll see two lessons about grace in the kingdom of God. First is the need for grace, and the second is the life of grace. The need for grace and the life of grace. Our passage this morning is is continuing the ministry of Jesus in the area of Galilee. Galilee is a province to the north of Judea. This is where the town of Nazareth is located, so it's where Jesus was raised. And so he begins his ministry in this area. Capernaum, where most of the stories in Mark's gospel have taken place so far, is in Galilee. It was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he called his first four disciples the brothers Peter and Andrew, and the brothers James and John. And that's actually where our passage today begins, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So starting in verse 14. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee once again, but this time he had a crowd following him, and he was teaching them. And it says that he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. Levi is known to us better as Matthew. He's the author of the Gospel of Matthew. But at this time in the story, he is sitting at a tax booth because he's a tax collector. Now, being a tax collector in the first century Roman world wasn't simply a job like working for the IRS would be today. The Romans made contracts with local people in order to collect taxes for them. And these tax collectors would often collect much more than the amount that they were supposed to give to the Romans. So they would keep the rest. Essentially, they were extorting their own people to get rich on behalf of their oppressors. So in the first century Jewish context, this led to animosity. There was ill will between the Jewish people and the religious leaders and those who were collecting taxes for the Romans. Tax collectors were seen as traitors. The the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they would call them sinners, and, and they weren't welcome to be a part of the Jewish people. They weren't welcome to even come and worship with them. And so the reason that it's mentioned here that Matthew is a tax collector is because Jesus is turning the norms of the religious society on their heads as he frequently does. Jesus approaches a tax collector. This is another outcast of society, but this is much worse than when he touched a leper. 
Because the tax collector chose this fee. The tax collector chose to be a traitor. He's collecting taxes for the Romans. He's taking part in the oppression of his own people. The tax collectors were the most hated people in all of the Hebrew society. It's similar to how people felt about Nazi sympathizers during World War II. They were utterly despised traitors. But Jesus shows us that this sin of being a tax collector and the heart of greed that causes it are not irredeemable sins. He walks right up to the tax booth and he tells Matthew, follow me. He's calling this tax collector to come and be one of his disciples. So Jesus is establishing something important about himself in calling this tax collector to follow him. He's a different kind of rabbi. He's a different kind of king. His kingdom is a kingdom of grace. It's sinners who enter the kingdom of God through the grace of God. And we do so by the work of Jesus as a substitute in the place of those who believe. No one is worthy of the kingdom of God besides the king Jesus himself. And so the only way to enter, the only way to become a disciple, the only way to repent and believe is through the grace of God. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in Ephesians 2 when he said, For by the grace of you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a, the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The kingdom of God, the salvation of your soul is completely the work of God's grace so that no one may boast, that no one may fill themselves up with pride believing that they had anything to do with their own salvation. But it also means that no one is too far for salvation. No one is too far for God's grace. As we see as this story continues, starting in verse 15. And as he reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's one thing for Jesus to call a tax collector to follow him, as he did with Matthew. Because Matthew got up and he did follow him. He's now leaving this life behind, the life of a tax collector. The life marked by greed and rejection of God and, and God's people. By following Jesus, Matthew is showing repentance and belief. And as controversial as that would have been, it wasn't as bad as what was taking place in this scene. Jesus is at Matthew's house now, eating at a banquet with all of Matthew's friends. Matthew seems to have thrown a banquet to celebrate his new life as a disciple of Jesus. This would have been similar to the banquet that was thrown in the parable of the prodigal son. That the father threw for the return of his wayward son. Matthew is rejoicing in his salvation. And he must have invited all of his friends. Because it says that there were many tax collectors and sinners there eating with him. 
Now the word translated as sinners isn't really a general term. It was more of a technical term that was used to describe people that the Pharisees felt were inferior. It was people who had no interest in following the traditions of the scribes and the elders. The Pharisees created two categories. They were the righteous, and all the people who didn't follow their traditions were sinners. The sinners also didn't follow the laws of God completely, much less the man-made additional laws that the scribes and the Pharisees added. The sinners were often in a state of being ceremonially unclean. In addition to them, there were tax collectors there, the traitors to the Jewish community, and Jesus was just sitting there, eating and drinking and being in their presence. And so the scribes of the Pharisees say to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were in shock that Jesus, who was a teacher of the law, a rabbi himself, and he was eating with these people, violating the rules that they themselves were following. He's rejecting their tradition. The Pharisees were probably the most prominent group in the religious leadership, in in what's called the Sanhedrin at that time. And the word Pharisee literally means the separated ones, or the holy ones. They lived a separated life. They cut themselves off from contact with those that they deemed sinners. And they developed an extensive application of the law, and they applied it to all these specific situations, which they followed in strict observance. And this included extensive laws about ritual purity, which was well above and beyond what was in God's word. And so they would attend banquets, as they clearly were at this one for Matthew, but they carefully avoided ritual impurity with those that they deemed sinners, those that were not following their traditions. But the issue, the real issue, is with their hearts. Their hearts were set on glorifying themselves by showing everyone how holy they were. Their hearts were not set on glorifying God. Because if they had a true love for God, that will manifest itself in a love for others. A true love for God would show itself in a love for these sinners that they clearly held in contempt. Truly loving God itself is loving sinners around you. It shows itself in a love for your neighbor that Jesus is modeling in his life. Jesus is the purest human that ever lived. And he is the savior of sinners. And he's not like the Pharisees in that he actually had a perfect righteousness. His heart is pure. And he came for the salvation of the unrighteous. So when he heard the scribes questioning why he was hanging out with sinners, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he begins his explanation of why he's eating and enjoying the company of sinners. Why he's spending time and mingling with these treasonous tax collectors and unrighteous sinners with an analogy. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus is here for those who understand that they need him. He's already publicly announced his authority to forgive sins. He's proven himself to be God's agent with his miracles and his casting out demons. And those who understand that they are sinners, 
know that they need the forgiveness that only he can bring. Those who understand that they are sinners know they need God's grace. And this is our first lesson of grace in the kingdom of God. The need for grace. Everyone, you and I, need the grace of God. The Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 3, he was quoting from the Psalms, but there is no one righteous, not even one. And so the real difference between someone who believes in the gospel and those who don't is usually the starting place. It starts with the understanding of themselves. Those who rest upon and receive Jesus as the only way to salvation must first understand their need to be saved. Before you can believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, you must first understand that you are a sinner completely in need of God's grace. God's grace is his undeserved, unmerited favor upon his people. You know, often people distinguish between God's grace and his mercy. His grace is getting blessings, getting something that you don't deserve, usually something positive. Mercy is not getting the punishment that you do deserve. And every one of us needs both. These are two sides of the same coin. God gives them both at the same time. And this begins with, with knowing your need for these things. The gospel begins with knowing your need of God's grace and his mercy upon you. And this is where the Pharisees went wrong. They believed they were righteous in themselves, in their ability to keep the law. They even kept all these extra laws that they added. But they failed to see that they were ultimately unrighteous before the God of perfect holiness. And because they failed to understand this, they failed to see their need for forgiveness that Jesus was bringing. They failed to love their neighbors. They lacked compassion on those who were suffering around them as we repeatedly see throughout the gospel. They believed that they were righteous in themselves and therefore better than those that they had labeled sinners. But casting aside your own self-righteousness and knowing that your only hope is the grace and mercy of God, knowing that your only hope is God's favor and blessing upon you that you don't deserve, is the beginning of believing in the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus is pointing that out when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Just as only those who are sick will seek the help of a doctor, only those who know that they are helpless sinners before a holy God will seek the grace of God. Jesus is ushering in a new error in God's reign. Jesus came to fulfill the kingdom of God, and he does so through God's grace. He does so by proclaiming the gospel of grace, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins to sinners. He's proclaiming forgiveness to those who know that they need God's grace. But the controversy surrounding Jesus and his conflict with the religious leaders, religious leaders doesn't end there. We see it continue in another story starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
So Mark sets the context. The, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees were fasting. And fasting was an important part of Jewish religious life. The three main pillars of Judaism were taught to be prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. The Old Testament records various seasons of fasting. But it was only required or commanded in the Old Testament one day a year. They were commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees, however, fasted twice a week, every week. It was most likely the Pharisees that Jesus is referring to as hypocrites because they were the ones who fasted to get everyone's attention. In the evening service, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we actually will study this passage tonight. Jesus said, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The Pharisees fasted weekly so that they could be seen. It was known to everyone how holy the Pharisees were. But even John's disciples were fasting. And this may have been because John was arrested and taken away from them. And so this becomes another point of contention with Jesus. They say, why are your disciples not fasting? The question implies something's wrong with Jesus because his disciples aren't fasting like John's disciples and especially like the Pharisees. So then in verse 9 we see Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus replies to them using the analogy of a wedding feast. He's revealing himself as the bridegroom. He's affirming that the presence of the kingdom of God, the presence of God's Christ, God's king, calls for a celebration. Like a wedding, Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners because he's bringing joy to them. He's bringing the joy of salvation. In John's gospel, in chapter 3, John the Baptist actually compares Jesus to the long-awaited bridegroom who brings joy with his arrival. But Jesus also mentions there will be a time when he is taken away. He's referring to his pending death. He is yet to suffer and die. So there will be a time for the disciples to fast. But now he's saying is a time to celebrate. Then he gives two quick parables. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So Jesus now uses these two illustrations to teach what his coming means. First, a new new piece of cloth. This has yet to be shrunk. It's sewn onto an old garment that has already been shrunk. So once you wash it, the the new patch will shrink, tearing the garment. And the second is comparing putting new wine into old wineskins. Because doing so would burst the wineskins, ruining both the wine and the wineskins. So both these parables are about 
the relationship of Jesus and the gospel to traditional Judaism. With the coming of Jesus the Messiah, with the arrival of the king, the time of fulfillment of God's reign is here. So there's a radical new life that Jesus' disciples are called to. Jesus is the new patch. He is the new wineskin. And he's preaching a gospel of grace, good news of the kingdom, the forgiveness of sins for those who repent and believe. And this is in stark contrast to what the Pharisees have been teaching. They're teaching a self-righteousness. They're excluding all who didn't keep the minor details that they added to God's law. Most people had day jobs. They didn't even know what all the laws that the Pharisees had added were. Judaism itself even is entering into a new era with the coming of the Christ. And so the Old Testament law is separated into three parts. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And this is eternal because it reflects God's moral character. Therefore, the moral law still applies to us today. But the ceremonial law and the civil law were only meant for the time prior to Jesus' arrival. The ceremonial law, which would have been the sacrificial system and all the laws that surrounded ritual purity, they, they were a shadow of Jesus himself. They pointed us towards Jesus. And so they became obsolete with his coming. And the civil law were just the judicial regulations around Israel as a nation. And so these also became obsolete with the coming of Jesus. And so Jesus is pointing out that this change has come about with his arrival. The ceremonial law and the regulations of ritual purity, the temple sacrificial system, are all being fulfilled by Jesus himself. He is the pure and ultimate sacrifice for the atonement of sins. And so the whole sacrificial system was put in place to point to him. And now he has arrived. And so he's teaching against trying to fit him into this old category. You can't try to fit Jesus into the old system that has been fulfilled in his arrival. He is here. Now this new era, this new time has come. It's a time not of attempting to earn your own righteousness according to the laws the Pharisees were teaching. But a time of living a life in Christ. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they aren't to try to fit him into the old way of life that after he ascends into heaven, many people still try to do. Paul is consistently teaching against not trying to fit Jesus into the old system. The grace and the gospel is something new that fulfills the old. But to follow Jesus completely in a new life of grace is what we are called to. And so that is our second lesson on grace in the kingdom of God. The life of grace. God's grace is so profound. It affects us in every way. There is initially this overwhelming grace of salvation. Where God grants us his mercy and his blessings and a new life all according to his grace. He's given you and I a salvation we don't deserve. All by his eternal and unending grace. In the moment of your conversion, all your sins are forgiven. Through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. And the grace of God frees you from the penalty 
of your sins. It frees you from the law and any failed attempt at earning your own righteousness. It frees you from following all the details of the ceremonial law and the burden that the Pharisees put on the people. It frees you to live for Christ by his grace. And there's the daily grace of God, the grace in sanctification. Your new life in Christ as you grow in Christ's likeness is all by the grace of God. As you continue to grow in your relationship with Christ, as you go further in your journey of following Jesus and being his disciple, you will pray more. You will grow more in compassion and forgiveness. You will grow into the image of God more and more over time. And this is all God's grace in your life. When you trust in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, when you put off your own self-righteousness and follow him, you're completely surrounded by the grace of God. It consumes you in forgiveness and love and changes you. It frees you to love as Jesus loved, to obey Jesus out of love, not out of pride or, or fear of condemnation. It gives you the power and the strength to live according to the grace of the kingdom of God. The life of grace that Jesus calls us to is about living according to God's law, but doing so in the freedom that is brought about by Jesus Christ on the cross. It means living life by the way Jesus modeled life, living as his disciples, no longer under the ceremonial law, free to eat what you want, how you want, but also in the grace and forgiveness extended to you, living with grace towards others, modeling the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, the grace of the kingdom of God to those around you. When people experience the church, they should see the love and grace of God expressed by his people. When people experience you, They should know the love and grace of God is revealed in your heart. But we all fall short of this in our lives. We all at times fail to show the grace of God. None of us perfectly show the love and grace of God in our hearts. You and I will sometimes live as if we don't need the grace of God. Or we live as God's mercy and his blessings are deserved. Sometimes we burden ourselves with the feeling of needing to earn our own righteousness before God. But in his grace, God provided a king who would perfectly live in God's grace. God provided one as your substitute who didn't need grace himself, but lived and died so that his people, so that you and I could experience his everlasting grace. The eternal son of God took on a human body and a rational soul so that he could be fully God and fully man. And he lived the perfect life of grace. He reflected the image of God perfectly so that you and I could live in his grace. He freed you from the law. He freed you from the sacrificial system. He freed you from the slavery to sin and death. All because of God's grace for his own glory. God bestowed his grace upon you and I, not because of anything in us, not because we are better than anyone, but for his own glory. And he did all of this, that he may be glorified in his mercy upon you, that he may be glorified in the riches of his grace, 
that he may be glorified in you living in his grace, in you showing his grace and his love to others. You live with the grace of God in your life that others may see him in you, that others may see Christ in you. And you do so not in your own power, but through the power of Christ working in you. The sanctifying grace of God empowers you to live with the love and grace of God in your life. It's God's grace that saves you. It's God's grace that changes you. It's God's grace that makes you like Christ. And when people experience God's love and God's grace in your life, may they glorify God for his marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, knowing that we are helpless sinners in need of your infinite grace. But you, God, are so good and loving that you bestow your grace upon us freely. Grace that we do not deserve. Lord, continue to bless us with your grace. That not only will we be forgiven but we will be yours. You'll continue to conform us into the image of your Son through your grace, that we may live with joy and peace and love in our hearts as you called us to. That we, people may come into contact with us and they will glorify you when they meet us. That we will show the love and grace of Jesus Christ in our lives to glorify you in your holy name. So it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our gracious Lord, we pray. Amen.